to the bitcoin podcast episode number 218 i'm your first host marcello and i'm host number two d host number three dr cord petty coming at you what's up oh yeah what's going on fellas live we are we're actually live now when we say that Yo, so, we've released uh, an episode every day this month so word you know haven't missed a day the Bitcoin Podcast Network in full effect, running out full bores, baby. That's what I'm talking about. I gotta stop saying baby. I was I said it like 20 times on just the headers the other day, Notice and uh, Jesse was like, "Why do you? What? I don't understand why you keep saying baby." And then, well, I have been listening to a lot of Flint Flossie. That could contribute. Rolling across the nation. Yeah, I feel so, like just the headers is just like like rush hour, where you say a lot of black things. And Jesse's like doesn't know how to respond. Jesse doesn't have a very Asian accent to only been here for ten years. So yeah, I give him, yeah. Um it's it's funny though when we have conversations and then I'm reminded that it's like, oh, you're definitely not American. Because you don't know what the <laughs> hell I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh yeah, man, another uh terrible week in crypto, right? Is that what we're saying? Is that what we're leading the show? um price wise it's pretty bad yeah man price is taking a big old major doo-doo here let's look at let's look at prices i have no idea what they are oh this would be a chance for me to flex my production oh why i got my taco meat showing let me button up my shirt here Your taco meat yeah when black men have chest hair it looks like taco meat never heard that before never that's a new one really so uh, you're half black i at least think you hear there's a lot of black things Let's see. Bitcoin price is currently at time of recording six thousand one hundred forty-six. Ethereum's at three oh nine, and everything mm. else is who cares. Okay, Ethereum being out three oh nine is is uh. Those are Litecoin prices right there. Litecoins of not anymore. Uh, Litecoin's, Litecoin's at fifty six like bucks. Fifty, yeah, fifty something dollars. Down ten percent over the last twenty four hours. Chell, you made a strong point before the show. You were adamant about it. You were like, GPPs care about price. We got to talk about price. Well, I'm a GPP, and that's all I care about. So I imagine that's what everyone else cares about. Interesting. Well, what do you, what, Cello, what do you think this means? Yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. Prices are being so low. What, 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 are your, what are your feelings, thoughts? I think it's that ETF bullshit. I don't think it's just market cycles. I could be wrong, though. But I think that uh, we're going to have to wait until September for approvals. Or some, uh, some some clarity, but I don't think the ETF thing is helping. And uh, I would think people would start pricing that in now. I think the herd's coming, 
and I just think that this is like a little lull in the price. Say herd or hurt? The herd. Okay. Because the herd is coming is a very different thing than the herd is coming. Herd's coming. Um, Word? I I don't believe in like a two-year winter based on market cycles and all that. You know, I I, I would like to think that it's not, the the market cycles aren't as predictable as. Yeah, but you sound like the same person who's like, I don't believe in uh, tectonic plates moving. And it's like, how can you say that? You're not a fucking geologist. Like, you're not bringing anything to the table. It's just people are so sure of it. It's like, oh, well, why don't you just take a million dollars and buy some Ethereum and wait three years? It's such a sure thing because they're they're patterns, you know? It's just not a sure thing. People are so sure of it because there's predictability surrounded by this currency, especially Bitcoin. 12 and a half Bitcoin every 10 minutes comes into circulation. Oh, okay, that. That drops down to 6.25. Like these cycles are anchored to things. That's why I don't see why people flip out. The inflation rate is coded in. Like the inflation rate in 2020 will be lower than the US dollar. It will be. There's no if, ands, or buts about that. Right? So I don't understand. Like these cycles happen. And if you go back and you look at all these boom and busts, they get longer every time. So the last winter was two years. This one's going to be from. This one's going to be four to five years. If you look at the very, like those same spikes up and down with the exact same shape, they just get a little bit bigger every time. It looks almost just like a fractal. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's going to be the case. Four to five years winner is not the case because the, the, the rate at which it's becoming useful or not is increasing. And the only reason there's, only, there's, there's cycles in the first place is because the utility hasn't gone up and people are just trading it back and forth for various reasons. So the financial market of this whole thing is 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 pushing the price back and forth, while the actual utility of the underlying blockchain network, Bitcoin, for this instance, isn't doing anything. It's not changing. So like, who gives a shit? And so like, the the more and more and more it becomes useful, the more and more the price stabilizes or raises based on its utility. And since that's not a big enough percentage of why people are thinking it's valuable. The, the financial people who are moving it around are just going to keep moving it around. And so like, it's, it's not, it's, I guess, I guess you could say there's, there's seasons, but they're artificial seasons. It's just, it's, it's made of bullshit. It's like, uh, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I also don't think that we can survive a five-year winner. I, I wouldn't survive a five-year winner. Bitcoin won't. I mean, like it's, it's, I don't, I don't know. It's like maybe the five-year Bitcoin winner moves everybody else to a currency that's, moving that's doing something yeah there'd be a massive change if that happens yeah but i'm also curious to see like why people think that bitcoin now don't get me wrong i'm not a bitcoin maximalist but bitcoin is not like not doing anything segwit gives you a cap of two megabyte blocks that's those are there's already two megabyte blocks going through quite regularly and then on top of that segwit now you have options of, of many different things that can happen so Bitcoin moves slow, not that it doesn't move. I don't think it's moving fast enough to keep up with the demand. And other other things are. Like the amount of innovation around Ethereum and layer two networks and scaling, barring a serious like breaking vulnerability when it makes one of these changes, in my opinion it'll it'll pass Bitcoin <laughs> eventually. That's I mean that's a big if, right? That's a big that's if. That's a big man. if. But like they're not doing it in a in a willy nilly way. They're like they're adding scalability technology in a lot of different ways that's that's not breaking the underlying layer okay. and 
if it continues this route, there's no reason to use Bitcoin. Other like, because like the majority of the people who use it is like, oh, it's been around the longest. It's the most secure. It's it's safer because as a smaller attack surface, things like that. But like over time, those those reasons aren't going to work as well. Yeah, yeah. This is, these are also things that everyone said before. Like we before, it's been nine years. Lived through and before. That's, yeah, I know. that's my whole Still, thing. Locally. It, it for me, there's like this whole argument, and it just proves that the majority of traders, they they trade solely on financial tools or indicators that analyze the momentum or the trends of price and volume exclusively. They don't look at any real data that has any bearings on the actual possible value of what they're trading. So yeah, I agree with Corey. It's just it a is. matter of time until the price starts to reflect the reality of each technology. Is it five years? Is it one year? I don't know, but. It's like the the digital scarcity thing is now becoming somewhat intriguing because it's no longer like in in the beginning when it was basically just Bitcoin, it was real digital scarcity. There were only 21 million Bitcoins. But Mm -hmm. and that and that was the only thing that you could get at that served that functionality. Right. And now that's not necessarily the case. So like, is the, yes. we might be overly analyzing or, or attributing value to scarcity that isn't quite scarce. Yes, what you just said is very true. And what you just said is also why you, people, there can't be this humongous, like there can't be this distribution of where we decide to assign value. Uh, uh, like there's gotta be one or two digital scarcities. There can't be many digital scarcities that have enormous value because that doesn't make any sense because that means that there is no scarcity you're right and so that's gonna that's probably gonna rally around the things that are useful actually useful not just like we made digital scarcity ha because that's no longer a thing that's 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 rare yeah it has to be a community surrounded by a useful token that isn't just there to hold the purpose of the token can't just be to hold because we can make that over and over and over again now, community is not going to rally around that because it's not unique. Yeah. Sometimes when people say scarcity, I think of like a Halloween city, like scarcity. And oh, wow. I just chuckle inside. I've never even thought of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm now mad that I have to. <laughs> I just kind of chuckle inside. <laughs> yeah. that's, then, that's where Jack Skellington lives in scarcity. Scary um, Terry. And then I wanted to look at a POV. Like if someone has, you know, $40,000 invested and right now they only have 15,000. I mean, from a technical standpoint, how interested are they are in the space? That's what you have to look at. They're scared to sell. So they're just going to put it away and walk I mean, and like, stop looking at it probably. Standpoint, like, do they care about the technology or from like a technical analysis standpoint to what should they do with the 15 grand or what do you Yeah, mean? it's just like, you know, the, I feel like this, the, the price brought us here and then like, oh, now that we're in the the through the doors and we're in the the store, look at all the shiny things people are building. You know what I mean? But it's just like if Bitcoin and Ethereum went to zero and all the alts went to zero, how many people are going to stick around and watch Vitalik clap weird at conferences and talk about sharding and all that? I think you're surprised at how many people would stick around and watch that. I think but you'd be also- surprised how many people will head for the exit doors too. Like no, I would, I wouldn't. Be. It's mutually exclusive. They need to be together. There needs to be interest on both sides to build the best ecosystem we can. I mean, if, there isn't. If we need people to care for the for the for the technology to take off, 
Like that's a that's a bit like I think that's that hinges on it. If it's required for general purpose people to care about the technology for it to for it to be massively adopted, then we need that. If it's not, say like it it just becomes the backdrop of how the internet works and exchanging value, then we don't need people to care because the people that do care are building it, which will then enable mm-hmm. those utilities, which allow people who don't care to do new shit, which makes it useful. Yeah, we don't give a shit if you care or not. But like there are, but maybe it's just like a first world country problems, right? That could be it. Because like we don't, we don't need it. It's not necessary for in a lot of the ways, unless you're unless you have strong ideology around, you know, holding your money away from the government. Mm Hmm. I just I can't like look at. Um, I know we wanted to talk about the the lattice, like Grid Plus. It's like I can't keep up. There, you are an energy company. I, I get grid plus tokens. I can pay my energy, and now, oh, they now there's an entirely different oh, they've, business. They've had that. Now they've had that in the works. That's the whole. That's the backdrop to the entire thing of grid plus. Yeah, but why is there a personal crypto bank that you can buy and put in your house? You're you need you need that automaton to to handle the money and do the negotiations for trading the token the grid tokens back and forth, and then also like exchanging mm-hmm. the energy tokens back and forth. And what it ends up being is more than that. It ends up being your personal gateway, like your your home device is the gateway to all cryptocurrencies as well as where you can safely store shit. And so like not only it it, it ends up bootstrapping a lot of the user base that you need to for a lot of these platforms to take off, because not only does it it gives you a reason to put a node in your house, which then makes the network crazy decentralized and gives everybody access to all these dApps and so on and so forth. As long as, as well as a way of making money to then use those dApps passively through sharing energy. Yeah. Uh, and and to, another thing to your point, Cello, is that a lot of businesses on the outside are totally different in effect than what they actually are. And the only reason I'm saying that is because, like, I don't know, a year ago, I watched that movie, The Founder, about McDonald's. And McDonald's is not in the restaurant business. They're in the real estate business. You know what I'm saying? So just because they're an energy company doesn't mean that they're not also having a different effect on some different market. So, all right, well, let's uh, talk about that. They built a hardware wallet and account abstraction framework that lets users set up their accounts. If other companies rolled out these options, you think more hardware options will spur mass adoption, correct? I do. I absolutely believe that not on a, I, I think there's a small sub group of society that can handle abstractions like very fluidly and what i mean by that, an abstraction is like some sort of uh, it's an abstraction I, I don't really know how to define it other than that but like um okay this is how i'll say when i was teaching you know teaching there's a there's a small group of kids that i could say like okay here's the different equations of a line and I could give them all different way, different uh, forms of, of, of how to graph a line, and they knew exactly what that line would look like. Point slope form, slope intercept form, the, the easy shit. They would say like, oh, okay, that's a line, that's a line that's slightly slanted up and to the right. Boom, got it. Then there were other kids that were like, how do you know that? I can't just see that. That's, I'm just looking at numbers and letters. This is stupid. And then I'd have to get like a piece of string and get the little wood with the nails on it and show them slope. And they were like, oh, I get it now. I can actually touch this line. I see the way it's moving. I see its rate of change. This is great. 
I think that more people are like that second person than are like Thank you. that first you're, you're talking about the abstraction of variables, right? That's how people have a hard time grasping that. Going from yes. going from a number to in, a variable any number, and then reasoning about what you can do with the variable of any number. Exactly. Like, there's not a lot of people that can do that first thing where they're like, oh, I see those equations. I know what that line looks like. I know what that line's going to look like. Boom. Most people have to have like a physical, this is a piece of string. Okay. And so I think with the internet, it was the modem, right? Everybody has a magic internet box in their house. It's the modem. And what do I do to connect to the internet? I use the modem. I think blockchain needs to follow that same model. And that's why I like this project by Grid Plus, because now there's a magic blockchain box in your home, right? People will see it and they're like, what's that thing? Like if you're having cocktails, you got people over having cocktails and long cigarettes because it's 1922 for some reason in my head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> see? The Grid Plus box and they're like, hey, what's that over there you got, Tommy? And he's like, well, that's my blockchain machine, see? And I get on there and I trade my digital assets, see? And like, there you go. You've, you've now got this abstract thing that comes from this ethereal existence called blockchain and you've got this material thing that people can interact with and it changes their thought processes and changes their behaviors. We, we had a conversation That's about this a while ago that, that kind of is, is a different aspect of what you're just talking about. And that is like, I'd never bought a gaming system because I wanted to look at what games are available. I bought a gaming system because I wanted to play a game. Like I bought, yeah. I bought an Xbox because I wanted to play Halo 2. Now, what is the application that people are going to want to buy this blockchain machine in their house? Because that's not, we, like we, we, we discussed this, like people don't buy things just to figure out what they'd like to do. They buy it because it's a necessity for the thing they want to get at. So mm. we need applications that people want to have and then need to buy that thing in order to do it. That's yeah. the whole killer app conversation people have been having for nine years. Yeah. What is the killer app that is going to allow that to happen? It sounds like sound money is not a killer app. Because yeah, otherwise, it'd be, it would be useful now. People would use it, and that'd be, that'd be enough for people to get on this train. Well, and it is for some, but it's not enough. Sound money is a killer app, but there's so many strong forces against sound money that it's like... It, it, when something makes so much sense, like, okay, it's really plain and simple. If something doesn't make sense, somebody's making dollars. Right. That's the oldest saying in the book. Like, doesn't make sense. Somebody's making dollars. And the fact that sound money doesn't make sense to people means that all these countries are making a lot of money on fiat. Like, that's how they keep their economies going. So, of course, there's going to be natural forces, whether it's actually a government saying, like, that money is shit, which we see all the time, or entities from within side of that country saying that money is shit. We see that all the time. That kind of perpetuates through society where now you've got like, you know, I explained sound money principles to family members and friends and they're like, mm, I don't know, but what am I supposed to do with my dollars? It just doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. It's got to make, you know, it's so got to make actionable impact on someone's life. I mean, if it, and there's a lot of people who aren't high enough on Maslow's pyramid to start philosophizing about sound money because it doesn't make enough actionable impact on their life right now. We need documentaries. From Venezuela. If you're in Venezuela and you're hearing oh, this right now and you're story. not persecuted, you need to tell everyone about how your life's going right now and how about you how you can't use the money from your government, but you can use Bitcoin to buy bread because it's sound money because your government doesn't have control over it. 
But I also don't want you to go to jail forever, so be careful. Be very careful. <laughs> I remember like reading in a marketing book that when we were like in the 1950s, like 70 years ago, the top speed of a car jumped to I think 70 or 75 miles per hour, and then the highways were appearing across the country around that time, but the signs didn't change. So there were a lot of crashes. The roads were really, really dangerous. And there were even protests petitioning to add speed limits to roads. So the speed of automobiles was a technology that was literally moving faster than design. It was a design movement and the creation of something that didn't exist before that we needed. And I think that's kind of where we are right now. We need to create a new system. And what do we need to know while traveling at high speeds? At what distance do we need to know it? I think that's the pro that's the intersection we're at right now. Oh, that that what do we need to know is like how to interact with ap applications like this and how different they are. We have responsibility to handle our own funds. That's not something people really understand right now. Like people before crypto didn't even know how to fucking balance their checkbook, right? Mm -hmm. And like they don't think you don't think about money growing up. I didn't start really thinking about money until I got into Bitcoin. And I yeah, didn't have hard. I didn't have very good lessons in my life to like handle money, think about investing anything it was basically i had i had a number on my bank account and i just had to make sure that number wasn't zero mm -hmm. yeah and now now it's like oh what's the blockchain and then you know you listen to hashing it out or you look at a diagram of private key encryption it's important technology but how important is it to know the the intricacies of how it works do people need to know that you need if to be able, able to you're right you're right you're right you're right there's a certain amount of things that people probably shouldn't have to care about in order to use this technology, but you got to have some type of mental map to give you intuition on what's important. And that is like understanding what a private key is and how you handle it. Mm -hmm. I mean, then because we even have bad names for things like wallets and shit, like you don't have a good intuition on how important it is to maintain your own private keys and make sure you own them and they're secure, especially in the digital age where almost nothing is secure. Yeah. I think what's also gleaning is that our roundtable conversations are anchored around our observations and our observations haven't changed much in the past three and a half years. Uh, I only know because I was going back and looking at our, our previous episodes and like we're still kind of saying the same things, but we're slowly changing it. Like what? Uh, like, for instance, I've been hammering on about needing a physical device forever and we um always at we always come around to the same question about like how much do people need to know like the age old pay at the pump question like nobody gives a shit how pay at the pump works they just love it like i get i get visually frustrated when the pay at the pump process is not working and i have to go in and talk to the clerk and they're like what do you need and i'm like i need gas on that pump but why don't you get your shit fixed or we wouldn't have to have this conversation so I don't like, need to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, I don't need you. I've been paying at the pump for years. So um, I don't know. It's, it seems like the same. Maybe we should like put our shows on megaphone blast and like the hot spots in San Francisco and New York and D.C. And the people that are building this stuff can understand the pain points of 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 everyone from from observers. Uh, conscious observers. And maybe we'll get those like revolutionary like graffiti icons of ourselves on spray painted on walls that says like think about your money or some shit like that yeah we could call ourselves bro toshi knock a bro down or whatever we want to call ourselves <laughs> and we're not anonymous too many bros ironically enough though it took it took nine years for them to figure out the science problem 
So we're still still asking those broad questions. How do we design intangible money? How do we build trust in a concept instead of a company? How do we make it simple enough so everyone can understand? And I think I think a lot of this is gonna we're just gonna keep having this conversation until someday through like through the technological innovations that are happening that no one understands, someone comes up with a use case that's like everyone needs to have this and everyone wants it. And then we're gonna be everyone's gonna flock to it so fast that we're gonna be struggling to keep up but it's going to be too late because everyone like the cat's out of the bag everyone needs to have that thing i don't know what that thing is it's i mean it's the quote-unquote killer app Mm -hmm. but i don't i don't know what it's going to be it's going to be something stupid probably the spirit we don't see coming yeah needs needs to possess somebody and give us some good design for the love of the love of steve jobs come back steve we need you we need you, Steve. Stop hanging out. We need you to. We got a lot somebody. of we got a lot of Wozniaks in the space. Yeah, a lot of Wozniaks. <laughs> got too many Wozniaks, not enough Steves. That should be a shirt right there. <laughs> Blockchain that be a shirt. Blockchain. Be a shirt. Too many yeah, Wozniaks, no. not enough Steves. Um, let's. Uh, I guess that's a good. That's a good positive point. We could take it on to the interview um yeah so speaking of oh fucking segue of the year right here speaking of sound money today's guest is uh Saijin, uh who who wrote uh the bitcoin standard um there's some logical leaps in the bitcoin standard per andy shout out to andy uh from the slizak um but um Saifedean. Saifedean? yeah Saifedean. That's a badass name. Like he feels like a fighting character from the early '90s, like from Samurai Showdown or some shit. Well, all cool things relate back to old fighting games for you. I played a lot of that's fighting the litmus games. test. That's the litmus test for cool in your book. Is is is, is does this would this fit in an old fighting game? What? How would the lore fit? <laughs> like when I was a kid, it just blew my mind that Sagat Scar was from Yu. I was like, oh my god, Sagat. Don't say it that way. Uh, I'm sorry, Sagat. Sagat's <laughs> scar was from Ryu. You're a Sagat. <laughs> um, so, anyways, the Bitcoin Standard, it's a, it's a book about how economies could possibly run if Bitcoin were the standard. Uh, because, believe it or not, uh, deflationary currencies were all the rage at one point in history. Um, so, it's a good rapper name. Cool. Dr. Saifedean. I thought you were going to say All the Rage. That would be a good rapper name, too. All the Rage? Like, for like a. It, it seems like it would be a modern take on Rage Against the Machine. Like, more rap and less rock. Did you guys read his book? No. Uh, I've read chapters of it, I've read excerpts of it. That's it's enough. good. It's damn good. <laughs> That's enough. I've read a lot. Of, I read a lot of it, but I haven't yeah. read the whole thing because I had to do the interview. Oh, yeah. I solo dolo this interview. You sure so. did. Um. Yeah, here it is, guys. Uh, here it is. Hey, everybody. We're we're back at you with another interview, another riveting interview, and um, today we are joined by a, um, according to his Twitter, self-proclaimed Bitcoin economist, which is awesome because not many economists uh, claim to be crypto economists. Let alone Bitcoin economists, so it's very. I'm, I'm I'm happy that you proudly claim that, and also the author of the Bitcoin Standard, 
And so, uh, welcome to the show, Saifedean Amos. Thank welcome. you so much for having me. I'm happy um, to be here. So, uh, we're going to come right out of the gate with the home run question. Why is Bitcoin going to take over the world? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll, we'll keep it easy. So, first and foremost, you know, we'd like to give you the opportunity to kind of qualify yourself to our listeners. You know, um, tell us a little bit about your background and then tell us a little bit about how that background intersected with Bitcoin and then how it's just been all Bitcoin all day, every day, ever since. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, pretty much accurate. So uh, my background is uh, in academia. I uh, did a PhD in sustainable development at uh, Columbia University in New York, and uh, that made me uh, very interested in uh, um, as, as I was finishing my PhD, I became very interested in um, what is called the Austrian School of Economics and the issues uh, related to sound money and hard money. That became my uh, that became the focus of my interest in terms of research. And then Bitcoin came about, and I heard about it from there. I heard about it as this uh, this uh, digital uh, way of trying to recreate sound money. And so it obviously drew my attention because it was uh, it was an interesting idea, but I was pretty skeptical of it for uh, for the first three, four, five years. I mean, I thought it might. I, I thought it, it it had very little chance of working or succeeding. Um, but over time, my opinion started to change, and I started to take it more seriously. And then, you know, by 2016. I'd become the Bitcoin guy that all of my friends come to and ask about what the hell is going on in the Bitcoin world. And so after a while, I just realized, you know what, I'm spending far too much of my life answering these people's questions. I should just write it all out into one long form answer. And that kept on just getting longer and longer. And now it's 300 pages. And then it became a book. <laughs> so you just say, hey, don't. Don't ask me any questions. See if I can answer all your questions with my book. And if I can't... That's, that, that's, that's really a very good way of explaining why somebody gets to write a book. I think this is when you have a real motivation for it. It's when you just can't answer people anymore and you can just tell people, you know what, if you have time to ask me, then you have time to read my book. Absolutely. <laughs> that will save me and you a lot of time and to give you what you're looking for. Absolutely. Is your is your mic moving around a little bit? Okay, oh, yeah. Is it better now? A lot better. It was it was, okay. it was like somebody was juggling your mic for a second. It's all right. We'll, oh, okay. we'll do it best to edit out. Um. So, okay. I guess. So I, I mean, not to take it jokingly, um, as I did when I first led with it, but you know, a lot of people, and I consider myself to be in this camp, can see a reality where Bitcoin becomes a reserve currency for the world because it, because it is such a sound money. And so I guess what I'd like to ask is or two things is a slight task is that for our listeners that don't know what qualifies as a sound money, maybe help them out with that. And then secondly, could we paint the picture, uh, you know, of the road that leads to Bitcoin becoming a, a world standard, a world, a world reserve Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a very good uh, way of uh, introducing the topic of my book. So, what is meant by sound money? Um, I, I follow a school called the Austrian School of Economics. They, um, they're a little different from the uh, 
economics that they teach you at the university. It's sort of a different way of looking at the topic of economics. Um, so from the Austrian school's perspective, there's two kinds of money. It's sound money or unsound money. And the distinction between the two is that sound money is chosen as money because it is uh, valued by people. And people accept it in payment because they choose to accept it, not because they're forced to accept it. And so, and also the value of that money is determined rate of exchange that is agreed upon between the two people that are part of the transaction. Unsound money, on the other hand, is imposed upon people at, with the threat of force and is, um, is also, you know, the, the value at which it trades compared to other goods and services is also uh, imposed or controlled uh, with force. That's really the simplest way of defining what we mean by sound money. So sound money trades freely, unsound money trades uh, um, based on somebody's uh, edict. And so historically, you know, what has uh, been usually sound money has been gold, or for the majority of the world, uh, or for uh, for the majority of human history, modern history, and pretty much everywhere in the world by the end of the 19th century, everybody was using gold as money. Um, and gold was the metal that won the uh, sound money market competition across the world. But um, the so that's what usually people think of when they think of sound money. When, whereas when you think of unsound money, we think of government money because it's government that forces people to accept uh, money that is uh, uh, at a different value from its uh, market. Mm -hmm. This is really how I think I would define the sound and the unsound money. And uh, in terms of Bitcoin, the reason I think Bitcoin potentially qualifies for being sound money is that you know nobody forces anybody to accept it as money. It is uh, accepted on its own for its own uh, on its own terms and uh, you know it has accepted it has acquired this market valuation where it has a price on the market it's acquired it freely on the market so what is happening now is we see this process of mo the monetization of bitcoin bitcoin is becoming more and more like money in that more and more people are holding it as a store of value and then as they hold it as a store of value that creates a larger uh, liquid pool of resources for people to buy and sell it from one another and uh, more and more people become likely to accept it for payment and um, it becomes more and more uh, common. So this is what is happening, uh, what, what we see happening in, in a sense with Bitcoin. Absolutely. Do you think that, do you think Bitcoin can ever get past the like chicken egg, egg chicken where um, it seemed uh, maybe four years ago? It was, uh, you know, everyone had Bitcoin, but there was nowhere to spend it or uh, people weren't spending Bitcoin. So people weren't accepting it. And yeah, do you see that we're that we're starting to turn the corner on that? Or are we still kind of stuck in the rut where, you know, I have Bitcoin, I'm willing to spend it. But then if I go to my local grocer, they definitely don't take it. So I have to, you know, maybe have a shift card or a debit card or something. But that that introduces a middleman. Right. That introduces uh, another step in the process. Um, do you see any likely scenarios where we can turn that corner where it's like, hey, not only do I have it and want to spend it, the, you know, people are also accepting it. And, or does it just have to be a point where it's, you know, every it's so ubiquitous 
that you know why yeah. wouldn't someone take it i think the way that it's going to work is that bitcoin is first going to uh, uh gain uh, market share as a store of value in other words more and more people will hold will hold it because they want to use it as a store of value for the future and so as more and more people do that it acquires more value and um more people value it and then because its supply is limited and that's really the key thing that makes bitcoin such a good money in my opinion is that the supply is uh limited and pre-programmed that it cannot be increased through increased demand uh, this means that if more people use it as a store of value, it appreciates. So that drives more and more people to want to use it as a store of value. And so over time, as the number of people holding on to Bitcoin continues to increase, because Bitcoin proves its uh, usefulness as a store of value, the uh, you know once um, as this increases, you know as as we have a very large number of people hold it, it becomes feasible for these people to start finding opportunities to trade it between one another so at this point you know less than one percent of the world i would say owns bitcoin and so the chances that you're going to be buying something from somebody um, uh, who's also going to want to sell bitcoins or buy bitcoins at the same time that you want to do that are exceedingly rare at this point mm -hmm. most of the times you're buying things from people who don't hold bitcoin but as the number of people who hold bitcoin around the world it grows with it will grow the demand um, that people will want to get paid in Bitcoin. And it's just a matter of Bitcoin continuing to prove itself to more and more people in terms of its ability to hold value over time. And it's already done a, a terrific job over the last 10 years if you think about how much it's appreciated. So likely, you know, it's going to take time for people to be convinced of this to come over but uh, the way that I see it it's economic reality and I think it's going to impose itself because it's just the limited supply of Bitcoin is going to continue to uh, make it uh, serve as a good store of value and eventually because it is a good store of value more and more people want to hold it and mm -hmm. more and more people want to get paid in it in time in other words the way to think of it is that right now you know you can't spend Bitcoin because uh, mostly because, you know, the people who have Bitcoin, uh, they don't want to spend it because they look back at the stories of the people who have spent Bitcoin and what has happened to them. And so it doesn't really make much sense um, to want to spend it right now. As long as people will accept your dollars, you are better off just giving them the dollars and keeping the Bitcoins for the future. Mm -hmm. But and, th and that's what I think most Bitcoiners are like. But, you know, with time, that sweet deal that you have, it's not going to last. And I think with time, more and more, you're going to find that the things that you want are not available for you unless you're willing to spend some of your Bitcoins. Absolutely. And I think it's very interesting you bring up the store value because that's something that um, I don't know if the listeners know or not, but, you know, uh, good money is considered to be store value, medium exchange and unit of account. Mm -hmm. And. I don't know if a lot of people realize that those three things might not necessarily all happen all at the same time. Um, yeah. And, and I do like how you've outlined how it has to be a store of value before it can be anything else, or at least at a minimum, you know, meet those, yeah. those standards. And so I guess what I want to ask is something that I tackled uh, just mentally jousting with myself is the store value have a 
definition that can be dependent on time? Or is that something that just happened? The market just, it's just an emerging property uh, from the market. Like, you know, Bitcoin used to be less than a penny, fractions of a penny. Now it's, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of, of dollars, um, at one point, tens of thousands of dollars for a very short glimmer of paradise there last in 2017. <laughs> that was a good, good, good day. Um, so what is there a definition for, Hey, after a certain period of time, boom, this can be deemed to be a store of value, or is it a certain amount of, um, capital that, that, that goes into this asset? Well, I think uh, on a, on a, on a, as a definition, you know, a store of value is anything that you, um, use in order to store value into the future. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you buy this thing, not because you want to consume it, but you buy it because you want to later on exchange it. And the way that I see it, you know, the function of store of value and medium of exchange are inseparable because you can't exchange something without storing value in it first. And, uh, you know, the mere fact of storing value in something means that you've exchanged it for something else. Or you'll be exchanging it at some point. So the two are inseparable, if you ask me. Um, the uh, what makes us, what and, and for me, you know, what makes something money is this interplay of the store of value and the medium of exchange. Because if you choose to make, uh, if you once you start choosing to make something uh, store value, you're doing it because you're going to want to exchange it either with yourself in the future or with others in the future. But there has to be a uh, there has to be a time element involved. So you're putting economic value in this thing and hoping that when you exchange it, it'll have as much value, hopefully more, hopefully not less. That's uh, that, that's how I think. But I don't think you know you could establish a uh, a specific market cap or value to qualify something as a store of value. You know, uh, people use all sorts of things as stores of value all over the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um. So I guess moving on a little bit, let's one thing that I would like to, I don't know, do we confront, but it seems to be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, naysayers say that it is impossible to, to have a, a significantly advanced, I guess, economy built on deflationary standards because uh, the idea of people wanting to save money and not being so rushed to spend it means that the consumerism goes down and maybe the velocity of transactions goes down. But I think that you have a different opinion of that. And I, I for one, have a different opinion of that, too, because when Bitcoin goes up in value, it's not like I don't spend it. I spend my Bitcoin. I spend my cryptocurrency. Um, I just spend less of it. So is it possible to have? Uh, not, I know it's possible, but what would it look like? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. You would spend less. Of course, you wouldn't spend none of it. I mean, uh, the the Keynesians who worry about this are absolutely correct in identifying the direction of the impact that a deflationary money would have. If the value of the money increases, people are going to be more careful about the money that they spend. If the value of the money declines, people are far more reckless with what they spend. So, you know, if you look at Venezuela today, uh, people get their paycheck and they will spend it before they can get home. You know, if you got paid now, you go and you spend all of your money first. Anything else with your life, you try and get rid of the money as fast as you can. Now, as the money is expected to hold on to its value better over time, 
you're going to want to, you know, re- uh, delay your spending as much as possible. You're going to want to uh, consume as late as possible because you always keep in mind the fact that if you uh, if you would not consume now, if you would delay your gratification, your consumption, you're going to get more in the future. But of course, you know, you, you will delay it, but you won't starve yourself. You won't, um, you won't, you know, um, decide that I'm going to just starve for a year so that next year I'll eat 5% more. Obviously, you need to eat this year uh, or else you won't make it the next year. So the notion that people will stop consuming at all is uh, not that difficult. What people will do is they will reduce their consumption, and as a result, they'll end up, uh, you know, consuming on uh, consuming only things that matter a lot to them. In other words, the opportunity cost of consumption rises because now, if you're buying something for a hundred dollars, you're thinking, well, if I don't buy this thing and I keep the hundred dollars for a year, I'll have a hundred and five dollars next year. Whereas if the money is losing its value, you know, you're thinking, well, if I don't spend it on 100 now, I'll have 95 next year. So you're more likely to be spending when the money is losing value. But of course, it's not going to drop to zero. People will still spend. And so what ends up happening is people spend only on things that are worthwhile. People are much careful with what they spend their money on. Far less consumerism, far, far less um, wanting to spend for the I'm oh, sorry about that. Okay. Far less consumerism and far less uh, frivolous spending just for the sake of spending. Because, you know, money, money is no longer a hot potato. Um, and the flip side of that is, okay, so, you know, they, all right, what, well, if spending goes down, you know, does that mean that the economy uh, comes to a grinding halt because uh, nobody is buying enough or people aren't buying enough? Well, no, of course not, because the resources that would have gone towards spending are saved. In other words, they are moved from satisfying our immediate needs through instant gratification and uh, high consumption. They move towards satisfying future needs. In other words, because I'm not spending money today, the, um, to think about it in terms of the capital structure, what happens is that if people stop spending a lot of money, like let's say, People start spending less money on going to bars and uh, restaurants. Um, they instead save their money and put that money in a saving account. Uh, so, or even you know, even if they just hide that money under their mattress, what that does is that it reduces the demand for workers and land and capital for consumer-facing industries. So we'll have fewer people uh, going to bars and restaurants which means there's less demand for workers in bars and restaurants. But what happens to those workers? What happens to them is that they move towards the capital industry. They move towards earlier stages of production. In other words, instead of people uh, you know, working as bartenders and waiters, they go towards working in factories that make cars so that you know, they, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be financed with your savings and then you will be able to buy the product of their labor in the future. You see, so removing the consumption today doesn't mean that, you know, we're just going to reduce this consumption from all of uh, our economy forever. That these resources, the money that I was going to use is still going to, are still going to be exchanged for one another later on. So it's just that instead of buying uh, dinner tonight, I'm putting that money aside to buy something in three years 
And the worker that was going to serve me the dinner tonight is going to start working at something that is a long-term investment, that is a long-term project. And so when people reduce their consumption, this is what initiates the process of capital. This is saving. You know, we, we reduce the amount that we consume, we have more saved. If we have more saved, we can dedicate more of these resources towards production and towards, uh, you know, orient them towards the future. And that really is what creates the process of civilization. That's what initiates the process of civilization. It's the ability of people to delay their gratification and to not chase their immediate uh, satisfaction, but to think instead of the long term and how to benefit themselves in the long term. That's really what the process of civilization is. It's how we move from, you know, hunting and fishing with our own hands towards developing sophisticated equipment, building capital, building homes, and building, you know, complex capitalist structures that uh, serve our ends and purposes. So it's a, a lot of the, the um, I guess the underlying theme I, I noticed in your book is, is a lot of it deals with the time frame and how people view their own or, or put priorities on wealth and uh, in, in, in accordance to like time, right? Some people value wealth within the next year, five years, 10 years. And really with Bitcoin and any deflationary system, it seems like you, you kind of have to view things in a longer term. And do you think that's kind of like electroshock therapy to most of, the, I guess, the Western world, which is, you know, you go out, you go out to a store and they're like, you, zero payments for, you know, 36 months if you get this credit card. And that's a very now, you know, gratification. Do you, is, what would it even take? Would it, t- would it take a complete collapse of the way things are currently or just enough of a shock that it's not very sustainable in order for people to start to readjust their time frame uh, on how they prioritize wealth? Yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, question. I, I and genuinely the answer is that I don't know how things are going to unfold. Um, I mean, there is that possibility. There's always the possibility that you know we're going to have to get a crash for this to stop being for people to realize this is not sustainable and that it's going to be painful. But I sometimes think no, there might be another possibility, the other way around, which is that you know one by one people uh, move towards migrate towards this new economy currency that allows you to save and hold on with uh, hold on to your savings into the future and once they do that you know one by one they shift their time preference lower they start focusing more and more on the future and they benefit from that and then people around them see them do that and they emulate them um, but in general you know the the the, the trend that you see around you uh, particularly in the US the fact that you know you, you can get 36 months zero percent interest on buying a flat screen tv which is kind of insane if you think about it you know flat screen tv is not a capital good it's not productive and so somebody's um you know paying you to own that uh tv for 36 months without having to pay for it it's pretty amazing and of course this is this is because money is easy this is because the money supply of the us dollar increases easily and that's you know reflected in the interest rate when you manipulate the interest rate downward it makes the supply of money increase because banks create new money when they lend and so you know bringing the price of capital down uh, 
bringing the interest rate down just makes borrowing very cheap for people and makes saving uh, expensive. It makes saving uh, not very useful. You put money in and you get 0.5% or 1%, not very uh, encouraging for most people. So this, I think, is, is, is purely a function of easy money. And I uh, this is why I like to tell people, you know, Bitcoin is... Uh, Bitcoin is not a cool iPhone. Uh, it's not what you want. You know, it's not this, oh, wow, this new technology that I'm going to, I can't wait to play around with it. It's, if we, we, we should, uh, we should be careful about not portraying it like that because people, uh, people, many, many people have portrayed it as this, you know, easy to use, uh, technological wonder that's going to be as transformative as the iPhone, um, and as easy as the iPhone. And I'd like to tell people, you know, Bitcoin is the medicine that you need. It's not the toy that you want. It's, uh, it's, it's not going to be, uh, it's not meant to be, you know, fun. And like the iPhone, it's going to be like the medicine that, you know, cures you of a disease. Um, it's not going to be fun taking it. It's going to taste bitter, but, uh, once you swallow it and you take it down, <laughs> eventually you're going to realize, Oh, wow, my life is much better this way. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's definitely the thing just to, to go on to your point is the medicine that you need is that, um, you know, before Bitcoin, I had dabbled in, you know, very standard issue ways to save money for retirement because that's a big deal. Of course, you should take it, you know, as as big of a deal as possible. And, and it wasn't until Bitcoin came along that I got really, really aggressive about educating myself about how to save money, how to invest where to put what, where for the proper growth. And it's exactly like you say, it was the medicine that I needed to kind of spark that vein of me going and doing a bunch of research on my own, figuring out what's the best way to save money. What's, what are the best ways to invest money? And, um, it's really great that you said that I'm going to kind of steal that from our personal conversations, if you don't mind. <laughs> no, absolutely. Go ahead. I, I, you know, I think, uh, Stealing and piracy are uh, are, are always uh, good things, you know. If you give credit, it's good. But uh, piracy in general is the best kind of marketing, anyway. So, so I guess I even without crediting, uh, even without crediting me for it, you know, putting my ideas out there is, uh, it is what I want. I'll definitely credit you for it. So, um, more on, um, I guess this would be some. What would you recommend to me? So I have a show on my network called On Ramping with the that I'm that uh, I was twenty so episodes in, uh, kind of halted doing that, but I'm starting to back up. Where um, I have uh, I had a unique thought one night. I thought, you know, what does Bitcoin look like in the eyes? Or, or it wasn't even Bitcoin. I said, you know, what would it look like for someone who was living in a time where horse horse carriages and bicycles were just everywhere. And then they start hearing all this stuff about automobile and then they actually see an automobile and they really don't know a lot about it, but it's kind of interesting. So I wanted to talk to that person and kind of educate them and on rent them onto what Bitcoin is and what cryptocurrency is and sometimes even blockchain technology. So what would be if you could give me three things to impart on these all these people that I'm going to be on ramping, uh, what, what would that be? Three must. I well, gotta hit them. I mean, uh, the way that I look at it is, um, um, 
so a lot of people are trying to explain the function of how Bitcoin works in terms of, you know, the mechanics and the block every 10 minutes and consensus and all that stuff. And, you know, my book also spends a lot of time trying to explain how that stuff works in order to explain the economics of how Bitcoin functions. But on some level, you know, I think there will, the day will come when this will be as uh, arcane to most people as the knowledge of how your car works or how your refrigerator works. You know, um, you and I probably have no, I mean, I at least I have no idea how refrigerators actually work these days. And yet, I've never had problems with refrigerators. I just buy from a place that I've never had problems with refrigerators. I just buy from a place that I've never had problems with refrigerators. I just buy from a place that has a reputation for selling good for good selling good refrigerators, and it just seems to work. At some level, you know, the market will. Um, establish processes that are reliable for this, and then they become standard issue stuff that you just count on. And the, the, the amount of things that we use like that in our daily life is enormous. So therefore, you know, I, I don't see the point in trying to explain Bitcoin initially to people from the perspective of uh, how it functions and, you know, looking under the hood. I think if to continue with the with the car analogy you gave, you know, there's no point in if you go into somebody who spent all their life on bicycles and horses to go and tell them, well, you know, we have an engine and it has six cylinders and it has fuel injection and and then will be ignition and you know thermodynamic laws and all of that stuff. It's kind of besides the point. You just want to tell them this is a thing that will drive you around. It's a mode of transportation, so you sit in it and take you around faster. And so with Bitcoin, the key thing for me is that, you know, this is a, the Bitcoin is a payment network that you can use to send money anywhere uh, in the world without having to rely on any third party that can control your transaction or stop it um, based on who you are or based on anything that you've done. And it's a currency whose supply cannot be controlled by anybody. That's really for me the punchline the most important thing about this and why i think bitcoin is really important it's a money supply whose uh it's a, it's a, so it's a payment network for a currency that is hard whose money supply can't be increased and the analogy here is to link it to gold because people can intuitively understand the difference between gold and paper money in that it's very hard for people to make gold gold is hard money because it's hard to make and gold is um you know it's hard to make because it's hard to find so generally, if you want to make gold, if, if you live in a society in which money is gold, if you want to make money, your best bet is to serve others and do something useful to others so that others will pay you with gold. On the other hand, with paper money, which is easy money, or with government money, there are easy ways for some people to make more of that money. And so if you want to get more money in a society that uses government money, you know, you can do that by serving others and working hard and giving others something of value. Or you can just find a way to be connected to the people who run the printer or just be connected to the people who run the printer. And so in that sort of society, you're going to find a lot more people who are not who are not doing useful things with their time um, because they're effectively uh, living off of the money creation. So that's really, I think, a good way of uh, communicating the 
importance of hard money. So it's hard money that's available for everybody in the world and that can be sent anywhere in the world in under one hour without having to trust and rely on anybody. That's how I see Bitcoin at least. Thank you for that. And I'll definitely try and roll that into how I'm on-ramping. Um, sometimes people get curious. You know, they want to know what's un underneath the hood. So I always keep that in my back pocket, letting them know about mining and how consensus works and, you know, how new Bitcoin is introduced into circulation. Um, but you're right. It's like they, they're not going to care about, like, e exhaust manifolds. They're, they're just going to know what the machine is and what it does. So yeah, exactly. That's a very good point. Um, so, so I guess we'll wrap this up with our trademark question mm -hmm. and then we can go and, uh, I'll give you the floor to say everything and anything about the Bitcoin standard. Um, but our trademark question is this, and that is in 10 words or less, can you describe Bitcoin? Okay. Um, well, I do have the definition in my book, but I think it needs a little bit more than 10 words. So let me try describe Bitcoin. It's a peer-to-peer -peer software, I'm going to cheat and count peer-to-peer -peer as one word. It's peer-to-peer -peer software oh, for... You got the mic. Oh, sorry. Sorry again. Uh, it's peer-to-peer -peer software for, for sending hard money across the world. I'll count peer-to-peer -peer as one word. Peer-to-peer yeah. uh -huh. -peer software for sending hard money across the world. That's nine. I think I got nine. Yep, nine. Congratulations. Uh, you win. Uh, congratulations. Because uh, we don't really have like a, a word for that. Um, That's fine. But, it is, you know, one thing I have noticed, though, is that those definite the rate of failure on being able to get under 10 words has decreased a lot over the years we've been doing this show, which tells me, like, like you said, is things might be slowly heading towards things being more arcane with Bitcoin. Um, yeah. which is a definitely a good place to be. Um, so I guess now the floor is yours and, and to describe to everyone who hasn't read the Bitcoin standard one, just my personal endorsement to my, to the audience, go get this book and read this book. And, uh, you don't have a choice. There's going to be a quiz in the Slack. If you can't pass the quiz, you're going to get <laughs> booted out of the Slack. Um, no, I'm kidding, but just go get the book. It's a great book. Uh, Definitely should be on your must-reads, but the floor is yours. Saifedi, go for it. Well, I'll say that you know my book is um, is uh, ostensibly about Bitcoin, but the first seven chapters don't even mention Bitcoin. Uh, the first uh, three, four chapters discuss the history of money, try and give people a, an historical background of the evolution of money over time, and then chapters five, six, seven focus on the three aspects of the uh, the importance of hard money and why they matter. And these are really the reasons that I'm uh, interested in Bitcoin. And so these are, you know, for me, this is the best part of the book and it's the part that I would like to sell you on. If you'd like to imagine what a world running on Bitcoin would look like, how it would be different from today's world, those three chapters are for you because we look at the differences between different forms of money across history, what gave them their monetary status and why they lost it, we do that in the first four chapters. And then once you've seen enough of these stories, then you look at the, uh, um, you look at the, you know, we look at the lessons of what these means. What is the difference between the gold standard and government money and how Bitcoin can be different, can be similar to either of these 
and what you would expect from it. And that's, uh, you know, it, it, it involves uh, individual decision making, the issue of time preference, which we discussed. It also involve, involves uh, individual decision making, the issue of time preference, which we discussed. It also involves the issue of uh, personal freedom versus government control. I think a Bitcoin economy will see people have more freedom in what they do and it'll have less control for government because government would lose its ability to print money. And it would uh, contain an analysis of issues like business cycles, inflation, recession, unemployment, all of these problems that are assumed to be a natural part of a, per of a market economy, that they're just, you know, how markets work and how capital systems work. In my book, I argue and I present a lot of evidence to show that, you know, these are just simply a function of fake, easy money. Now, the reason we get business cycles, the reason we get inflation and recessions and unemployment is all fundamentally to do with easy money. And this is what Bitcoin can fix. So it's um, it's 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 a, probably a unique perspective on uh, Bitcoin to most of you. It's, it's different from the usual stuff that you hear about why Bitcoin matters. Um, it's not about, you know, um, uh, low transaction fees or fast transactions. It's about how culturally a society that runs on Bitcoin would be different yeah, economically, culturally, and uh, scientifically, and in many different ways. So I strongly encourage you to check it out. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much for stopping by. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Have a good day. And that was the interview. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you go out and get the book. I mean, it's a decent read. Um, it's, it's right there uh, next to, you know, I've got all, obviously all of Antonopoulos books. I have Crypto Assets by Chris Berniski and um, Jack Tater and the Bitcoin Standards right there. Um, yeah, this is a good read. Stuff that you should think about and know uh, if you're going to be heavy into crypto. Someone gave me a book as a joke. I think it's called like uh, the Bible of cryptocurrency investing, and it's it's fucking terrible. Yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> oh wow, what does it say? Like, uh, wait, wait, hold on, let me, let me get it. Speaking of which, like, uh, just the cryptocurrency investing Bible. Ultimate guide about blockchain, mining, trading, ICO, Ethereum platform, exchanges, top cryptocurrencies for investing, and perfect strategies to make money. Oh, yeah, that's a shitty book. It's, it's just open up to page something and then read something. We need shitty books, though. Not every book can be a banger. SpongeBob. Are you watching SpongeBob? Is Ophelia watching SpongeBob? It's on her iPad. Oh, I can hear that. Um, Yeah, so we don't want to watch Corey read, but what I will tell you is that if anybody is guaranteeing you money, uh, yeah, you should, like, no. That should be a huge red flag for you. Um, At the time of writing this book, a total of 804 cryptocurrencies exist, but I do not advise that you study all of them, just the top 10. Hmm, invest beyond the top this 10. top 10 only. That, that's, there's no space there, so that's interesting. Invest beyond this top 10 only when you start making profit. So, uh, I don't know. Who wrote that book? Alan T. Norman. Maybe we should get him on the show.
and we should uh, talk about how successful they aren't. I guarantee this book has made money. Well, I know that book has probably made money, but um, I don't know. What if, what if, like you know, like Dan Brown is a celebrated author, but not all of his books are good? You think we're gonna have that? All same of his books are golden. Digital Fortress is a masterpiece. Book isn't that good. I don't know. I stopped reading them. I, well, I have all of them. Both of them are great, but the ma mastering Bitcoin and mastering Ethereum, those aren't necessarily smooth reads. Like, no. Those are tech. Those are like those are like reference material. Yeah, like those are those are for like a class to use yeah, that. That's as a, a that's a good textbook for a class on how to like the fundamentals, the fundamental like building blocks of each of these things. Yeah. Is that for like devs? Yeah, devs. It's a good resource for devs to like build things because they understand how they work. I've read Mastering Bitcoin just because I wanted to see a little bit more behind the scenes. And which is why I always defend Bitcoin because, yeah, I mean, it's slow and it has the stigma within the community now, but it's still marvelous. Like Bitcoin is, is a marvel. I, I had an idea for so, a book. Um, huh? It was a thousand things you can do during a bear market. And it'd be like, first page would be like, go outside. And number two would be like, you know, uh, do something with your kids. That's actually a pretty good book, man. <laughs> That's yeah. actually a good idea. Like, go do some yoga. Yeah, go do yoga. Yeah. Idea number four. Like, go take a, a salsa dancing lesson. Ever had a chocolate Twizzler? Go to Target. <laughs> Get yourself a bag of chocolate Twizzlers. It'll blow your mind. Like, that would be pretty solid. You know how butthurt people would be if they, like, bought that thing. You have, like, actual <laughs> advice on, like, what to do in a bear market to make money. And it's just, I mean, all, it's all filled with just, go outside, man. Yeah, just, just do random stuff. Just take a drive. <laughs> you know, dream car, go test drive it. Don't buy it or do. It's your life. What do you want to talk about? Let's talk about <laughs> talk about crypto stuff. Um, I don't know, man. What's what's going on in the Ethereum world? I feel like we need to rejuvenate our Ethereum show. Um, hell, let's just have an open casting call right now. If you're way into Ethereum and you want to host a show like talk to us join our slack and come talk to us maybe we could format something up because i think like you said Corey, ethereum is moving so fast all the time and it's obviously like when it comes to popularity um, it's arguably more popular than, than bitcoin so uh, i don't even know if that's an argument i think it just is when it comes to most people in the crypto community People who are so, using things like uh, like companies trying to dive in or diving in with Ethereum because it seems more appropriate to the types of stuff they're trying to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And financial markets tend to stick around Bitcoin because it's it's much more money centric, right? Yeah, and so you know we we need to get our Ethereum show sparks back up. I and... I know what I want for an Ethereum for an Ethereum show. Um, it's basically just the audible version of a week in Ethereum. So like if someone Ethereum. could just take week Ethereum. And then read those headlines and discuss what those things are every week. I'd be happy with that show. That would that yeah. be that be people would listen to that because they don't have time to listen or they'd rather listen than read. In some yeah. cases, so they keep up to date with what's going on in Ethereum through Evan's curated material. Evan's pretty much too busy to make podcasts these days. So, yeah, I mean he's 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 like so he's like legitimate independent journalist mode. Evan is like I've, I've watched him in action. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna have an open casting call. If you've got a voice for radio and a face for radio, 
We have neither cool. of those. I don't. We I, we have we do not. And so if you've got that mm-hmm. stuff and you're into Ethereum and you're willing to um, basically give an overview of a week in Ethereum for our audience, uh, join up in our Slack. Um, talk to us. Uh, we'll help you out with the rest uh, because we feel like there's a lot of information on a week in Ethereum that just falls on deaf ears because not everyone subscribed to it. Not everyone knows. And uh, if you don't know what a week in Ethereum is, it's like the most popular newsletter um, in the Ethereum community. And uh, Evan does a great job of curating all that information. I think it's Um, the only, I feel like he has no competition. No, there's others. I don't know what they're called, but there's others. I saw one, I I saw one that was a Bitcoin or just blockchain centric one. That was actually pretty good the other day. I forgot what it was called. Oh, Damn, it was in our Slack, the one that has like uh, yeah. a weekly newsletter. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. It's so good. Oh, I was actually happy with it. It was really good. Um, it was we'll so good, we don't remember. Yep. Yeah, so, so I remember good. the content was good, but I forgot the name of it. Because like, all the fucking names are the same, man. It's like, you know, block this, bit that, so on and so forth. It's like unchained. <laughs> that's, that's the Everything's the fucking show. same. So block, I can't remember. I can't. Remember. I can't differentiate that. anyone. <laughs> that should be the name of the show. Block this. Bit that. That'd be a good. That'd be a good name for a show. A great name. A bit of blocky bits, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, anyways, uh, Ethereum. Let's talk about what's happened in Ethereum, which which is interesting because now Ethereum seems like it's moving slow, but I guess it's it's not. But there's sharding that should be coming around. The Casper sharding coming around the corner. A lot of these projects are go, are launching on mainnet. Not a lot. A few of these projects have launched on mainnet. What does that mean, Corey? Because I actually had a very specific question the other day. And I'm sorry, person, I didn't get back to you if you are listening. He said, what does it mean when something gets on mainnet? All right. So and there's so- uh, when, when building a decentralized application, there's a bunch of test nets, which is basically um, the, a, a copy of Ethereum where the tokens are basically have no value. So you develop what you're building on these test nets to see if they function properly, or if there's vulnerabilities inside of them and, and all so on and so forth. So that if something is wrong, people don't lose money because the value on those of those tokens on that network are worth nothing. But it's basically an identical copy of the Ethereum network, right? And so what happens is once they do that for a long period of time and they're confident in the quality of the product that they're building and the and the security vulnerabilities have been shored up and so on and so forth and they're ready. Then they release their application, they deploy their smart contracts, so on and so forth, onto the main net where the tokens have value currently around three hundred dollars. So that means, and, and once they do that, it's those those smart contracts are immutable, which means that you can't change those smart contracts and updating them is, is somewhat of a difficult process. And so you do a lot of work to make sure that how things work with your application work well for a long period of time, and you have the right roads set up to upgrade when you need to upgrade. So for the longest time. We've had a lot of developers on Ethereum testing, trying to build, reiterating, changing things on test nets, but no one ever really fully deployed, at least the large projects, really fully deployed on mainnet. This year, we're starting to see some of those larger projects from the initial or ICO days finally deploying products on the mainnet, which are being used, like Augur. Status is, a main, status is on mainnet. Hmm. That's why so, CryptoKitties is so popular, because it was one of the first things to be useful on mainnet. And um, I guess what it all boils down to long term is that when you have all these smart contracts that are interoperable, hopefully, uh, big hopefully on that, 
you start to get um, synergies that are pretty amazing, uh, right? Like for instance, you know, if you have the civic smart contract, which is about identity, then you could theoretically never have to log in anywhere ever. Yeah, you, that's the idea like, is like once things are actually getting on the mainnet, then you can start u utilizing those synergies and then building things around like taking pieces of each one and utilizing for what they're good for. Like like you said, identity for civic or using your civic identity for in, inside Augur to make prediction markets on whether or not one of the other applications is going to take over too much of the total transaction volume or some stupid shit like that, right? There's yeah. a lot of like weird stuff you can do once these things are all on mainnet and the underlying communication between them is the token, right? Because that's the idea of a blockchain. It's a one language that speaks on with all of the applications that are built on top of it. And that's going to be Ethereum, like the Ether token. I just watched Lord of the Rings. It's so Sauron-y. Sounds so Sauron. <laughs> you can't yeah, help like... but say it these days. It's like people get it like one language to rule them all. But it's like, One it's language. also like the Tower of Babel, right? It's like, yeah. if everyone speaks the same language, then you can do a lot more stuff. Yeah. And there's got to be a Schmeagle out there somewhere. It's got to be. Um, so, so that's what mainnet is to the person that I forgot to get back to. One, it's the same I thing with Bitcoin too, right? Bitcoin, Bitcoin has test nets. Mm -hmm. Most of the testing of everything goes down and then it's launched on the mainnet. Um. So that's, I think that those are significant um, milestones for Ethereum that no one's, you know, they're just really flying under the radar that we wanted to highlight for you guys is that things are coming to mainnet. And the more projects that move to mainnet and uh, in a successful way, it means you start to get these weird synergies um, that could potentially be one big amalgamation of the killer app. Well, it's also like what we talked on earlier, it's, it's more useful. Like people actually use the token to use these applications because yeah. they can, right? Like the token becomes useful because the applications that have been, been building for so long are now on mainnet and you can use them and actually make money, spend money, add value to your life, depending on whatever the application is, so on and so forth. It's not just talking. It's, a, it's not just a, like, you know, in the future one day, we'll be able to do these things. We're actually starting to like come online and try to do these things for real with real money. And so that plays to you, Cello, the rep, the present representative of GPPs everywhere is that once there is utility to this and that utility is scarce, then the value should go up. Uh, no, there's a uh, Funfair was uh, released on mainnet and their altcoin plummeted. So I don't think they're, I don't think it's connected. I don't know people using it. I mean, I, I think, I also think that there's an overarching, like the amount of money being thrown around is, is like overshadowing the utility of these things like the financial the financial aspect of people trading the stuff is still so much larger than actual useful use, useful utility yeah. like even and if then, even if a successful project hits mainnet and everything's going fine the the financial traders are still going to overwhelm it until like we get a lot more utility and some of the like and to be frank man we're not I know crypto seems like it's a lot of money being thrown around, but it's not. It pales in comparison to other markets. So, I mean, what is it? Two hundred and fifteen billion, I think, is the market cap now. Somewhere I in there. I think it both slowly drop. I think it will drop below two hundred billion, but like that is like two hundred eight billion. Two hundred eight billion. That's 
BCT dominance or BTC dominance is back up to 50%. That's kindergarten hour. That's, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's recess time for other markets that have existed longer. That's not a lot of money. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really got nothing else I wanted to talk about. I kind of wanted to highlight that mainnet and what it meant for that one listener out there. I heard you. Yeah. I hopefully answered your question. That's kind of cool, and, though, about, uh, like, the fact that we can do that. There's not a lot of things in which, like, you get to do a full production run on a, on a system that doesn't have value. I mean, don't be wrong. It's not, it's not 100% the same thing, but it helps you find a lot of bugs without throwing things out in the wild and then figuring out mm-hmm. when value is there. Like we have a, a hard copy of how these blockchain networks work and operate. You can you can experiment and try things on there to make sure that what you're trying to do works well, at least technically. When you introduce mm-hmm. it to the mainnet, you have a lot more people with with like serious eyes. Like say for instance, there's an application on the testnet that um, was like when it goes live would be accumulating and moving a lot of money, and I found a vulnerability in that testnet while it was doing mm-hmm. there. If I was a malicious actor and I wanted to make money from this, I wouldn't say a word. I'd wait for it to deploy to testnet, hoping they didn't fix it, and then exploit them using whatever vulnerability I find to make money off it as a, as mm-hmm. a malicious actor, right? So the, the idea is that you get enough people who are aligned with what you're trying to do, who are smart enough to help you find those vulnerabilities before you go to before you go to testnet so that people can't do that because if you go straight to mainnet and there's value then everyone is incentivized to steal from you as opposed to help you because mm-hmm. there's they're economically incented to do so man there's a lot that goes into this shit um i'm sure glad i'm so glad people way smarter than me are working on it every day day in and day out um but oh i was gonna i know what i wanted to say I think something that gives you a very unique edge in your level of understanding, Corey, is I remember when we took that class at Tech about like the super, like programming the oh, super yeah. class. And I was like, wow, this is intense. And then you told me like how at that specific university, like there is, you basically have to, when you program something, you have to take into account how long it takes, right? Because you're only allotted so much time on the supercomputer. Yeah. Like each department has so much time they can use the supercomputer. For. We have core right. hours, so it's it's like a it's not it's, it's it's a combination of the number of processors that you use and time. Because say for like the number of core hours is different, or like say if you do like a serial program run on one piece on one computer like one CPU, mm-hmm. you can run it. Say you have a thousand core hours, you can run that one CPU for a thousand hours, or you can run a thousand CPUs for one hour. And so it's about how much time and resources you're taking up across the entire cluster. And so universities, if they're buying time on clusters, they buy core hours. So it's like how much resources can you buy? And so I think that working, being so familiar with that concept is what allows you to understand these other concepts so easier because you understand what it's like to have to compete for computational resources. Oh, yeah. Most people don't even care. Like when people are using the computer, they don't, that's nowhere near their thought processes on like re, using resources. They feel like they're just using a machine. I feel like I guess I, I so, do take that for granted. I don't like I, that, that I have that. I, I basically assume everyone else feels that way, but I guess you're right. They don't. No, nobody feels that way. 
Nobody like cello. Do you are you worried about the resources that you're using on your computer ever? Like, have you ever thought, like, oh, how much juice is, or how much, how many, how long is my CPU, my my third CPU core working in my my MacBook? Like, yeah, not that often. Nobody thinks about that stuff. And so I think if that and and the reason I bring that up is because like most big ideas start at universities. I think that little small nugget of an idea that you have to compete for resources, if that spreads, then that will also spread throughout. I think that's an adoption catalyst is that if people understand like, oh, I'm using a computer, I have to compete for the resources. Oh, Ether, Ether is what I use to, to buy pay, time on this machine. To, to buy time on this machine. And why do I need this machine? It does all this cool shit that my machine can't. Like that's what I, there's a, there's a leap there that's missing. There's yeah, a bridge. You're right. That's a good, that's a good way to kind of, it's an interesting avenue to try and tackle explaining this to people so that they, they get the reasoning behind it. Yeah. Because I only know, because I had to build a, I had to build that for that class, build that one program to work on that supercomputer. And I was like, this is something I, I don't want to do with my life. And so that's, that's, that's when I made that decision. And I went the exact opposite. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's all I got. I wanted to bring that up. I thought it was very interesting. I was thinking about it the other day on the bidet. Uh, so we riggedy wrapping up. Yep. We riggedy wrapping it. So uh, if this is your first time here in the show, please subscribe. Do all of the things. We're usually really bad at that. So I'm going to subscribe, hit the button, do the stuff. You can hear all the shows. We've got seven shows now. And then that's not excluding Corey and I's guest hosting on blockchain. That's excluding our guest hosting on block channel. Uh, we also guest host there. So that's a thing. You can Google it. Um, let's see. What else do we do? We have, uh, thank you, uh, Tompkins, Mr. Tompkins for, for writing. Said it right. So, I did say it right. This two times now. So now I'm at zero I'm at par. Uh, so, Status is doing a podcast soon. That'll be interesting. Really? Yeah, they're gonna start a podcast out. That's like, uh, it's like the state of us is what it's gonna be called, and it's basically like who works at status and what do they care about. Why don't they call it "What's the Status" or "The Status"? Because it started out status started out standing for state of us. Oh, so they're gonna run with that. Oh, okay. There's a little bit of lore in there. I like it. I'm learning. Yeah. I'm learning as I as I work there. Nice. Um. We should get their host to come on we our show. We'll figure something out like that. Do a little, do a little cross promotion, promotion stuff. In cross pollination. Um, so, Mr. Tompkins, thank you very much. So, as there is a week to be in a, a week in Ethereum, we have the week to be in crypto. Is written by Mr. Tompkins. Uh, that is also curated information uh, from uh, the crypto sphere, and and uh, most recently added two part two parts, a featured podcast from our network and a featured podcast from the greater community. And he added a section um, that is tidbits of information that comes from our Slack uniquely. So if you, you feel like there's just some stuff you're not getting, uh, he, we, there's many, I think, what, there's at least 35 different either articles or resources or something that comes from the Slack on a weekly basis. He puts it in there. Mm. I'm tired of talking. We're done. Yeah. Shout out to Zoe Saldana, Gary Hilson, and Zazie Beats. Uh, play the outro.